slippers on shoes. What's the matter, Morty? Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Fashion has changed. No, it hasn't. Hi, I'm Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And Chelsea, happy birthday. Thanks, babe. My birthday was earlier this week, as was Paul's, because we have the same birthday, and as was Tat's. Yeah, Tat's is technically the day after yours. I say technically, it truly is the day after yours, but because she is Australian, everyone calls her on the 13th anyway. So really, you all share the same birthday. Which means that, like, your kink is basically just people born on September 13th. Like, what is that about? I could go back to therapy and discuss it. I think we more just, like, should talk to an astrologer or something. Empaths, astrologers, give us a ring. Virgos and Taurus were a good match, so it's not that surprising that my work wife and my partner are the same sign. It's a little weirder that you guys are born on the same day. It's a little weird that we all have to have a joint birthday cake, <laughs> like triplets or something. I had to abbreviate your name so that it would all fit on the cake properly. <laughs> Ugh. So this episode has a slightly different format than our usual episodes. We are going to answer some hotline calls. And then I did a one-on-one interview with my friend Marissa Meltzer about her new Glossier book. And apart from you, Lauren, Marissa is truly my other favorite lesbian adjacent straight person. And you can even tell that from the Glossier book because one of the chapters opens with an excerpt from Kissing Jessica Stein. Yeah, I do think we need to maybe dedicate a Patreon episode about us who've been miscoded. Like, we should have been lesbians, but we're just not. Like, Janine Garofalo. Yeah, it makes, like, living in the world, like, awkward and tragic (laughs) at times. But at least you can find solidarity uh, within another marginalized community. Yeah, we don't have enough women who should be (laughs) lesbians, but are straight women representation. (laughs) We really don't. Speaking of gay shit, shall we get into our first call? Let's do it. Hi, Chelsea and Lauren. Um, Big time uh, listener here, Richard Burton Gurley, um, calling. This question's for Chelsea. Um, I'm curious if if you think that any of the girls on In Just Like That would be Swifties or Gaylers, and if so, which which girl? Also, what era, what album do you associate with each character on In Just Like That? So should I just not say anything for the next three minutes? <laughs> this or? question is not for you, Lauren. No, absolutely. I I want to hear your perspective on this. I think both of us probably know that one Swifty that has been confirmed on And Just Like That is Lily because she played anti-hero at her F the Boys Valentine's Day party. Park Avenue Privilege is deeply inspired by Taylor Swift's own singer-songwriter background. For sure. But I kind of think that she's too straight to care about Gaylor. I think Rock is probably the most likely of the cast to be Gaylor. I feel like Che Diaz is a bit too old for that. I feel like Lizette maybe could be Gaylor because of her white hot chemistry with Che. I see that. I was also going to say, I feel like given Miranda's love of tabloids and newfound queerness, she would totally have a whole deep dive in Gaylor lore. I like to think so. I like to think that Rock has shown her some TikTok videos. If I was to assign Taylor Swift albums to end just like that characters, it's bizarre, but I think Carrie is clearly folklore. I wouldn't 
have necessarily gotten that vibe from Sex in the City, but on And Just Like That, she's really into wearing plaid, looking autumnal, being kind of depressed all the time. And maybe it's Sex in the City Carrie's reputation? She's definitely reputation post the big affair, for sure. But I think of the end, just like that character's Che Diaz is the most reputation, because Che Diaz is aesthetically reputation-coded, and also reputation kind of a gay album. Charlotte is lover. She is a romantic at heart, but also extremely supportive of her non-binary child. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's hard to say with Miranda, because I don't think Miranda closely relates to any Taylor Swift album. Although if I had a gun to my head and had to pick one, I think... Which which you do, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would pick 1989 because 1989 was the transitional record between country and pop. This is where Taylor sort of started her second act, became an adult. And plus, the last track on 1989 is a song called Clean, which is Taylor Swift's one and only sobriety anthem. So I feel like that relates to... Miranda's alcoholic journey. What album is the Kaler album? That's Reputation into Lover. And we think that Maroon is based on? Yes, to a lesser degree, Midnight's, but Reputation, Lover, those are the big ones. I can really see Miranda and Rock just bonding over this and Charlotte having no idea what's happening. Although I think Charlotte would be a fan, for sure. She's not above taking Rock and Lily to the Eras tour. Oh yeah, I can imagine a scene in And Just Like That of Harry getting his American Express bill being like, you spent how much? (laughs) Next call. Hey Lauren and Chelsea, I was just thinking about another movie that you guys could bring up in maybe a next like hotline episode, or if you would want to recap this entire movie, but I doubt you'd want to, but I would just love to hear you guys touch on it. Exit to Eden, a pretty epically bad movie from the 90s that's like a comedy, erotic drama, I guess. I'm sure you're well aware of it. I'm sure you've seen it, but it's also impossible to find. It's not streaming anywhere. So I've been wanting to watch, but I guess I'm going to have to like buy a DVD. I don't know, but would love to hear you guys make fun of this movie. It's just so bad, but also I would love to rewatch it, but I just can't. All right. Love you guys. Bye. Oh, yes. We are well aware of the 1994 erotic cop comedy starring Dan Aykroyd and Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah, I think it's more of an action comedy. Like, there's nothing actually erotic about this film, but it is about two detectives, Dan Aykroyd and Rosie O'Donnell, who infiltrate this resort for people that are super kinky into BDSM. It's basically like a private island. And I think they're trying to catch, like, a diamond thief or something, as I remember. Chelsea, did you know that the script is based on a book Anne Rice wrote during her brief tenure as an erotic novelist writing under the name Anne Rampling? I actually did know this, but thank you for bringing this to the attention of some of our listeners. Well, this is fucking crazy because I have read some of Anne Rice's uh, erotic novels and... Same, obviously. There's no comedy in the Exit to Eden book, so it's just like, it's one of those bizarre things, like if anyone's seen the movie version of Less than zero it's basically a completely sanitized version of the book which how did they take this erotic novel and are like let's make this a comedy directed by gary marshall 
Is it because Pretty Woman was originally a very dark, gritty script called 3000 that he turned into this fairy tale that grossed a shit ton of money? So maybe studios were like, yeah, let's have him do that, but with this? The funniest thing about this movie is that Rosie O'Donnell basically has to go undercover as a dominatrix. And if you've seen the promotional photos from this movie, you know what she looks like. She's in like a studded leather corset with like garter belts and thigh highs. But then of course on the poster, she has to be showing her badge because she's also a cop. It's extremely campy. So I've actually never seen this film. Wait, what? I know. I've never seen Exit to Eden, but I feel like I have because... I feel like that VHS box cover was such a staple in Blockbuster. Oh, yeah. I've seen it, but I've only seen it once. And in the years since, because I'm such a huge Rosie O'Donnell fan, I've wanted to see it again. But as this caller mentioned, it is truly impossible to find. I think we actually might have to buy a DVD and rip it or something. Or I don't know, maybe Paul can find us a link or something. Because I did go on eBay and the DVDs are selling. Even if we found a DVD, Chelsea, which you can easily on eBay, they're selling between $30 to $60. Worth it. (laughs) Recently, you went to Pickwick, which is a vintage fair that happened in Los Angeles for those of you who don't live in Los Angeles (laughs) and you sent me this picture of this Exit to Eden promotional t-shirt from HBO yes that basically has like a cartoon of a male chest that has like a studded vest it's it's Dan Aykroyd's outfit from the film and then on the sleeve it says Exit to Eden you're like do you want this and I was like Of course I fucking want that. It was one of those vintage stalls where his thing was selling vintage t-shirts and I was going through it and I stopped and I gasped and he was like, oh yeah, it's this movie with Rosie O'Donnell. I was like, I was like, I know exactly what this is. I did find it on eBay and I will put the link to it in the show notes in case any of you are curious about what this shirt looks like. Caller, thank you for this. I hope that both of us can see Exit to Eden soon. Hey, Kelsey and Lauren, this is Cassie, a long-time fuck-at listener, first-time caller. Um, Kelsey, I know that you have mentioned that you still get magazines, and I've seen on your Instagram your beautiful magazine collection. Um, I used to get a lot of magazines. I haven't been getting them that much as an adult, but I would love to get back into getting magazines. And I was wondering if you had like a top five magazine suggestion of what I should subscribe to. For any background, I'm 39. I live in Maine. So I'd love to be able to read magazines with great fashion and cosmopolitan things. Any suggestions from either of you would be really appreciated. Yeah, Chelsea, I too would love to get back into magazines. (laughs) What should we be buying? Well, it's hard because I've actually kind of fallen out of love with magazines but I do currently subscribe to two of them, which is Interview Magazine and New York Magazine. I feel like Interview is the best American fashion magazine that presently exists. I feel like New York Magazine just sort of keeps me up on culture in general. But I think for fashion, the British alternative fashion magazines have always been the best. So ID, Dazed, Another Magazine, The Gentlewoman. Generally speaking, I'm kind of more into buying old magazines on eBay. Like that's very much my vibe. Yeah, I find myself buying vintage magazines 
vintage home magazines because really the only thing that I read currently is Bon Appetit and Food and Wine. And I don't know if that just is saying what stage of elder millennial I'm currently in or what. Magazines are always good because the writing in a magazine is typically of a higher quality than what you would encounter online. Although, of course, we also read a ton of shit online that is also in a print magazine. Like I could subscribe to The New Yorker, but I just end up reading all of that shit online Anyway, the internet, our phones have changed things. And it's just, I don't know, it's hard for me to care about a fashion editorial these days. I don't know what it is. Well, I know what it is for you. It's the stock of paper they've been using. Oh my God. Speaking of which, okay, so the August issue of L got mistakenly delivered to my house. First of all, this was like a Karen Carpenter sized issue, which sure, typical for August, ad sales are always down before the September issue. But the paper that this was on was truly shocking. I literally thought it was a supplement to a larger issue that I just didn't receive, but then I saw it on an actual newsstand later. It was pretty anemic. I feel like magazines should be like more exclusive and more expensive. Like I feel like a a magazine like Visionaire was so ahead of the curve because they recognize like, oh, let's make this beautiful art object that's kind of like a souvenir to what's happening online. Yeah, I am surprised that there isn't a very luxurious quarterly magazine that works on a subscription system because I feel like you and I would buy into that for sure. Well, I think it's hard because all of the magazines we would subscribe to are international and it's just like hard, like that's a lot of money to spend on an international subscription to one of those magazines. It's like you just kind of buy them at the newsstand when the mood strikes, you know? Yeah, I think we're definitely in a post-magazine era because I recently walked into the Barnes & Noble at the Grove, which since I was a teenager, when you walked into the right were all of the magazines and I walked in and it was all books. And now they've shifted magazines to like a deep, weird corner all the way on the third floor. That's so insanely depressing. Also, just in New York, seeing every single magazine store, like the amount of bongs and lighters has slowly risen to like replace the magazines. And now every store that used to just be a bodega that like sold a lot of magazines now just sells a ton of bongs and shit and vapes and stuff. It's sad, but you know what? Casa Magazine, Soldiers On, thank God. Grateful to them. All right, next call. Hey, Lauren and Kelsey. Love the podcast, never miss it. I know this isn't the kind of question you usually answer, but I've basically just gone through a really emotional breakup where the person just fell out of love with me. And I have no idea how to fucking deal with it. And none of my favorite pop culture has anything close to examples of how to healthily deal with a breakup. So as resident fuckouts, I was just wondering if you had any kind of wisdom. First of all, I'm so fucking sorry. That sounds extremely painful. And breakups are so fucked up because it feels like your life stops and everyone else moves on and you have to mourn the relationship and you have to mourn the dreams for the future. And it's all just like, it's fucked up and depressing. So I do think that with a breakup, you definitely have to have a wallowing period. Like you have to just straight up wallow and be really depressed for like two weeks, a month, something like that. 
and then you literally have to like force yourself to rejoin society. I think it's helpful to have a new hobby. Like the last time I went through a hard breakup, I got really into hiking. That's when I got really into Taylor Swift and that gave me something else to do while I was processing those emotions. I remember this with you and I think it maybe is why you got into Taylor Swift is I think listening to a different style of music so you don't re-traumatize yourself with all the associations with the music you were currently listening to with your previous relationship. For sure. And like, I'm not about to revert back to listening to Portishead or the Smashing Pumpkins in a time of crisis. Like that's just masochistic. Right. It's funny. I put the stages of a breakup as sadness, distraction, more sadness, thinking you're fine, more sadness, actually dealing with it. Yeah, it's a process. And I do think that there are films about breakups that are therapeutic, but you have to lean into the comedies like The First Wives Club. Legally Blonde, The Wedding Singer. These are all very entertaining, comforting, and watchable movies. What you want to avoid is the blue valentines. The blue is the warmest color. Really anything with blue in the title. Yeah, don't watch Blue Jasmine either. Part of dealing with a breakup, especially when you're on the receiving end of a breakup, is this idea of how do you find peace when there's no resolution? I know this is not the same as the end of a romantic relationship, but I recently went through a friendship breakup where... It was made very clear to me by this friend that they no longer wanted me in their life. And this is someone who lived with me, went on vacations with me. This is not Chelsea, by the way. (laughs) Spent Christmas with my family, was on a FaceTime with my mother and I a year ago saying we were invited to her wedding. And then I wasn't invited to the wedding. And I got to watch on Instagram stories and I said, oh, okay, I guess this really is over. That was extremely fucked up, by the way, as someone (laughs) with inside knowledge of this particular situation. But I think there is this revolving conversation that you have with yourself of what did I do wrong? And after a while, I had a real conversation with myself and really questioned if this friend was there for me the way that I was for them. And they weren't. And so I think be sad, cry it out, fuck it out, learn a new skill, listen to a new genre of music. But I think if you really take stock of what this person brought into your life compared to what you did for them, I think you'll realize they weren't a good partner for you and you deserve better. Exactly. No notes. Hi, I was thinking about the fact that Becky Ann Baker played Miranda's sister in My Mother Bored Myself, and she also played Hannah Horvath's mom on Girls. And I was thinking it would be so cool if on season two of And Just Like That, uh, Lena Dunham came on the show as Miranda's niece. I just think there's a lot to explore there. Thanks. Bye. Okay, I meant to save this call for our first And Just Like That season two episode, but I completely forgot about it. And thank God I found it again, because I think this could be genius. Why couldn't we have a Flintstones meets the Jetsons HBO Sunday night mashup episode? Look, I know I've talked a lot of shit about it just like that. But if season three started with Miranda and her niece, Hannah Horvath, I'm back. (laughs) Crazier things have happened. Also, I feel like Lena Dunham does have reverence for the legacy of Sex in the City, so I think that she would be down. Also, fucking love Becky Ann Baker, by the way. This woman is genius. The last time I remember seeing her in something, I think she was a judge on Big Little Lies, but I also love that she's married to Dylan Baker, one of my other favorite character actors. Yeah, what is she up to? Well, I never watched Freaks and Geeks, but I think that's where a lot of people know her from. Well, she was evidently 
apparently in one episode of Ted Lasso, but as we've previously explained, we're not watching that show. Lauren's too lesbian adjacent to watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> I guess one of the few advantages to being lesbian adjacent. Next call. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Lauren. It's Zuleika from Massachusetts here. I am a longtime listener, sort of first-time caller. This is my first legitimate call. I usually am rambling something incoherent excitedly. I had a question about the Luke reference, because I know I always get your references, and I feel so seen by the pod, but when you talk about Luke, is that Lauren's (laughs) ex-boyfriend, or is it the name for guys who watch the show with us, or is it like the um, arch nemesis of a fuck ex? Let me know. I love this backstory that Luke is a reference to an ex-boyfriend I had. (laughs) Luke actually originated during one of our hotline episodes because he was a straight guy that called into the hotline and left us a very charming voicemail. He told us that he listened to the show because his wife, Audrey, also listened to the show, and he just was kind of a lurker in the background. So after that point, we started using the term Luke to describe our podcast listeners that like this probably wouldn't be their first choice to listen to, but they've kind of gotten into it a little bit just because they've had to listen to us talk so much. Yeah, and that phrase evolved into a catch-all phrase for our straight male listeners. And usually when we invoke this term, Lauren is talking about some Marvel shit that like I don't understand, that maybe a lot of our female listeners wouldn't understand, but that the Lukes would understand because they're like into that like bro shit. Hope that helps. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Lauren. Love the last podcast. Uh, Congratulations on your bow, Lauren. I am calling with love advice or the desire for love advice. I am looking to date the summer after a long period of healing from a, a bad breakup. And I wanted to hear both of your opinions on how to navigate online dating. I hate apps. I have a really bad time with them. I'll make a profile and then I'll delete it. And then also I did want to say, like, I do feel like I spend a lot of time out in the community talking to people, volunteering. I'm an extrovert. I'm always talking to people. So I feel like I'm doing a good job there. What else do I need to be doing? As I said to our friend Carly, who put this in her monthly Vogue column about what it's like dating in your 30s, online dating was the longest unpaid internship of my fucking life, Chelsea. (laughs) My advice is don't do it. Well, what's your advice for if you are? See, I have no online dating advice because I have never online dated. I've been with TAP for the past seven years. Before that, I was in a five-year relationship. And before that, like, Tinder didn't exist. Like, it was just Match.com, OkCupid, that kind of vibe. And I feel like that didn't really take off with gay people ever. Yeah, I feel like when it was dating websites, we were too young to really participate in that, necessarily. There's two sort of philosophies, because I've also had... A good amount of beginner's luck when I've just like downloaded an app when I was bored on a Saturday afternoon. Because the longer you're on a dating app, it's like the longer you're unemployed and you're just like trying, (laughs) you're applying for (laughs) any job at a certain point and still getting rejected. Right. But it really is a numbers game, which is what makes you lose your mind. It's like you have to swipe on, let's say, 12 people 
for maybe six to like you back. And then of those six, maybe you start a conversation with like three or four of those people and maybe one date comes out of all of that. I feel like you should probably try to talk on the phone or meet with someone ASAP because I feel like a lot of people that online date get caught into these sort of endless messaging things with people. And it's like, you can tell from the second you meet someone whether or not it's going to work. What is also going to drive you crazy with online dating is your friends who are coupled are going to say to you like, because you're going to go through a process where you're like, I'm fucking done with online dating. And you say that to your friends who are in relationships and they go, well, how do you expect to meet anyone if you don't at least try to put yourself out there? Have you tried Bumble? It's the female one. It's supposed to be better. And I guess what makes it feminist or better for women is that women are have to be the ones to reach out, which I'm like, what is this shit? Isn't that so like you don't get as many just unsolicited dick pics and stuff? I guess. But my go-to prompt, and feel free to steal this, was, so would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? Well, what's your answer? One horse-sized duck. Yeah, that would be my answer too. Because also I don't think people are keeping in mind, I think they think little rubber duckies, like, Real ducks are larger than you think. This may seem silly, <laughs> but then again, online dating is silly. But you could learn so much about a person with how they responded. Because you would think there's only two answers, right? Oh no, Chelsea. Some would be like, I'm not a fighter. I would actually befriend the hundred duck-sized horses. Then some of them <laughs> would give that answer and then say they would start a petting zoo. Many of them wouldn't even ask the question back to me. So you can <laughs> learn a lot from someone from asking this very dumb question. I love that. That's great advice, Lauren. You say you're an extrovert. You go out a lot. I would just use online dating as a supplemental thing. I wonder if standardized tests, you know, reading comprehension, that they're going to start using dating profiles because you have to read each profile very carefully to make sure that they're not just in an ethically non-monogamous relationship looking for a third. Well, that was also the problem with like dating for me, like, you know what I mean, with even looking at those those sites back in the day. Right. Because that's all anyone on OkCupid was looking for. In recent years, online dating has also become a repository for men who've just gotten out of relationships and aren't looking for anything serious. Right. I actually did just get an email from this company the other day. I signed up for something called the three date rule, which is a dating match service, which as a woman, you don't have to pay anything, but it's a matchmaking service. And occasionally you get emails with potential dates. How did that work? Not well. No, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> what are you talking about? Sorry, I can't even listen to what you're saying. I'm just thinking about the duck-sized horses. <laughs> This is what I'm saying. You also learn a lot. Someone that I would be chatting with on a dating app that wouldn't let this go and for like a day or two afterwards would still be talking about this idea. I knew before I ever met this person probably wasn't going to work out. <laughs> anyway, call us back. Let us know how it's going. Let us know whether you would prefer the horse-sized duck or the duck-sized horses. Hi, Chelsea and Lauren. Um, big fan of the pod. I just finished listening to your recap episode, A Woman's Right to Shoes. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of your favorite women who are child-free by choice. Love to know which icons I should be aspiring to. Thanks. Well, first and foremost, our queen Kim Cattrall. She does not have children. She does not want children because she doesn't want to spend even an hour where she isn't enjoying herself. And when you have kids, like you basically have to spend more than an hour doing stuff you don't enjoy. From what I understand of having children, just an hour doing something you don't want, like that's a good day. <laughs> 
But of course, Oprah immediately comes to mind. In her case, I don't even know if it's that she didn't necessarily have any desire to be a mother. I think she kind of made the choice and was like, I feel a higher calling with my work and I don't have the capacity to do both. So thank God for us that she made that particular choice. Also, the fact that she's also unmarried is like incredibly subversive when you think about it. Yeah, I think about someone like Ina Garten, who I feel like is an OG child-free icon because she got married to Jeffrey, if you know, Chelsea. I'm not that much of an Ina Garten head. (laughs) Wait, Ina? Ina? Ina. Ina. Her and her husband, Jeffrey, made the decision after they got married in the 60s, 70s to just never have children. It's not like she couldn't have kids, so they were child-free that way. They literally made a choice in the 70s and were like, fuck it. Well, you know who also doesn't want kids? Dolly Parton. One would think that Dolly Parton would have like 10 kids. But no, this woman has never had children. She's living her truth. She's a queen. Uh, What truth is that, Chelsea? Sorry, I can't be a Gaylor truther and a Dolly Parton truther on the same episode. Although I am also a Dolly Parton truther, of course. Well, that was going to be my question. Are we including famous lesbians who are child-free? Because then we're adding Lily Tomlin, Ellen DeGeneres, and Portia. Yeah, of course we are. Sarah Paulson. Look, there's so many. They're hanging from the rafters. We've got Helen Mirren, Winona Ryder, Tracy Ellis Ross, maybe a deep cut. We don't talk enough about men who are child-free icons, but Christopher Walken. Oh yeah, work. He doesn't need to have a spooky little child that looks exactly like him. Hey, major fuck at here. Just wanted to call about some relationship advice. Basically, this guy and I were going out for a while. Um, It was getting to the point that we were going to date. This was earlier this spring, keep in mind. Um, and when we were going to date, he suddenly said he viewed me more as a glorified form of benefits. I broke it off. We never really saw each other again until we hooked up a few months later. And now um, I'm back. We're, we're in the same college town. I'm back um, after a few months after all of this. And I still kind of feel the same, even though I left him. But I really miss him. And um, I saw him walk by, and we both made eye contact. And then we both looked away. And I feel like there's nothing more to do. I already haven't followed him on Instagram. But at the same time, I still want to, like, maybe meet him up for coffee. What should I do? Should I say something? Should I just move on? Please give me advice. Also, I hope Che Diaz dies. Thanks. Okay, I actually don't want Che Diaz to die, but I had to respond to this call. I think friends with benefits situations rarely work because they only really work if both people do not have feelings for each other, but also have sexual chemistry. And I feel like it's rarely sustainable because one person ends up having feelings or getting into another relationship. And I feel like staying in that sort of limbo with someone is like ripping off a Band-Aid slowly, like hair by hair, when you could just like rip the Band-Aid off. I kind of get the feeling, and I'm this is coming from someone that was in a multitude of friends with benefit situations. I feel like you would like us to tell you to pursue this, but you gotta let him go. Especially if he's not saying hi to you on the street. Like, fuck that shit. The romance novel enthusiast in me was like, oh yeah, just like a 
a hot wordless stare to each other like mm. me in my 20s I could live off of that for years chow <laughs> but I don't know what it's like in the gay universe but for us straights friends with benefits at least as I experienced it was men get to have all the creature comforts of a girlfriend while just like treating you like a whole <laughs> sorry for such a graphic <laughs> phrase not the caller whoever the caller was previously fucking this guy is giving me bad vibes I'm getting heebie-jeebies, let him go, move on. Because the longer you're sort of lusting after this guy or, or vaguely involved with this guy, that's going to drag you down and it's going to prevent you from meeting someone that you're actually compatible with who actually wants to treat you like a human being. Who knows? Maybe five years from now, you guys reconnect and he tells you he's been in love with you the whole time. You have no personal experience with that. Well, I, I do think that that's... That's true because if something is meant to be, it's meant to be. And I would take comfort in that. If it's not meant to be, not meant to be. You're meant for something else. You're meant for a menti bee. <laughs> Once the menti bee subsides, you can actually like be in good working order to have a healthy romantic relationship. Before we get to the next call, can we just touch down on the phrase friends with benefits? Because I've always hated, just say fuck buddy. Friends, it's like, I have enough friends. Friends with benefits makes me think of, wait, is it the Ashton Kutcher, Natalie Portman movie? Or is it the Justin Timberlake, Mila Kunis movie? No Strings Attached is the Natalie Portman, Ashton Kutcher film. I need some sort of Ryan Murphy feud-esque. I don't even know if there was a feud between these people. But I need like the behind the scenes of this triangle that Natalie Portman... Kissed Mila Kunis in Black Swan, was in a year later, no strings attached with Ashton Kutcher. Mila Kunis went off to make Friends with Benefits with Justin Timberlake, then like a year later got with Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, that's like some L word chart shit for sure. Wait, okay, Paul makes a really good point. Y'all do need to talk about how timeless Justin Thoreau's characters are dressed. But more importantly, I can't remember which iteration of Justin Thoreau it is. But one of them dresses literally the exact same way as Adam Kesher. Is that his name? Whatever his character's name is in Mulholland Drive, like they wear the same glasses or like the same style glasses at one point. I didn't see Mulholland Drive until like much later after my Sex and the City obsession. And sorry, I'm driving. Obviously, in my mind, they like live in the same neighbor or in the same universe, whatever. I'm also hungover. Crunch, crunch. Fuck, that's the wrong podcast. Okay, bye. Okay. <laughs> I love that this call ended with crunch, crunch. In this house, we also listen to the podcast Who Weekly, and I love that this man forgot which podcast hotline he was calling. I mean, he does reference Paul, which, by the way, when I played this to to prepare for this episode, he got so hyped up, he was walking up and down the living room. He felt very seen. I would say that, oh, the Mulholland Drive Justin Thoreau's look is the same as the author Justin Thoreau in Sex and the City, but he plays authors in both. It's the season one Jared character. And in Mulholland Drive Justin Thoreau, he does look extremely cool, I will say, in that film. He plays a movie director. It's cool, 
But I think it's even cooler than Sex in the City, actually. Yeah, I think the the linking thing are the kind of horn rimmed glasses. I don't even know what you would call them that I would assume were just Justin Thoreau's. Yeah, I also can't remember if we've ever talked about Mulholland Drive on the pod before. It is one of my favorite films ever. A lot of people hate it because it's, I don't know, non-linear, surreal. How would you even describe that? I would just describe it as a David Lynch film. (laughs) And people don't like it for that reason, but I actually once went to a screening of the Louis Mal film Black Moon, which is also like non-linear and very surreal. And it was introduced by a psychologist who basically said that like audiences like hate these kind of movies because like one of our survival instincts is to be hardwired to predict like outcomes, you know, so we can like save ourselves if we're being like attacked by a bear or something. So movies like that and Mulholland Drive, I think challenge that and it scares people who knows maybe this all exists in the same universe maybe in season three justin throw will come back as his mulholland drive character you know he could be a contemporary of uh what's his face ravi oh the marvel director yeah that's where that character in mulholland drive ended up he's in the marvel cinematic universe <laughs> all right guys we've come to the end of the hotline calls stay tuned for chelsea's iconic interview with marissa Meltzer. So today we have a very exciting guest, my dear friend, Marissa Meltzer. She is a journalist who has written for The New York Times, The New Yorker, Vogue, Vanity Fair, you name it. She's the author of four books, including her latest, Glossy, Ambition, Beauty, and the Inside Story of Emily Weiss's Glossier. Marissa, welcome. Thank you for having me. I've always wanted to have you on the pod because I thought that your voice would be a really fun addition. And you're a New Yorker. <laughs> With you, it, yeah. You my voice like how, like the actual tone of my voice. You're a New Yorker, but you're a Cali girl at heart. I am. I feel mm-hmm. like you can speak our language. I can. So for those of you who need a little context for Marissa's book, it is about the millennial beauty brand Glossier and its founder, Emily Weiss. But before we get into Emily... I want to talk about your relationship with Glossier because while in the book you examine and critique many aspects of the company, I know that you're a fan. I know that you've drunk the millennial pink Kool-Aid, so to speak. (laughs) I sure have, yeah. So I want to know what personally speaks to you about this brand. What are you buying into? I think of something that you actually said to me, I think – the last time I went to the Glossier store in LA was to buy you a travel size of the um, Milky, oh, the Milky Jelly, Jelly cleanser. Yeah. And you were like, <laughs> Glossier makes me such a basic bitch. And I think there's a little bit of that for me where it taps into this like collective femininity that sometimes I want to deny myself, but it's like, I want cleanser that smells like roses and I want pink. There's something about it that's this like lingua franca with women or just sort of femme people that really appeals to me. And there's so few things in some ways that are marketed to to women. In the way that we want. Culture is male culture. And, you know, when something is really dead set, has its eyes on me like the Barbie movie or Glossier, it's exciting. (laughs) Doesn't happen enough. No, no, I agree. I also do personally like that they peddle the no makeup makeup look. I know that's been a criticism of the company, that Mm -hmm. it's kind of beauty products for people that don't actually need them. But I feel like I feel like you and me are kind of a similar level of girly. Yeah, we're kind of same level of femme. 
Yeah. Like, do you identify as hard femme? No. No. Not hard femme. No. Yeah. No. I mean, I think you and I are like medium femme. Yeah, we're not about to paint, like, another woman's face on top of our own faces. Yeah, like, I don't know how to contour. No. Hell no. That's I, what, I get Tat to do that to me whenever I Yeah, I mean, I get to. Che Diaz to do that to <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, can you come over here? <laughs> I've always been more of kind of a skincare person. My mom actually is an esthetician. And has always been into skincare. And she's actually very into makeup, too. And so I was always like, I want beautiful skin. And I've never really felt that confident in applying makeup. Like, I don't, I've never done eyeliner and thought it looked good. Oh, same. Never in my life yeah, have so I once I'd, been able to do that. I just want things that I can kind of like smear on with my hands and be like, I look a little further from death than usual. <laughs> well, that's another thing that's good about Glossier, because when you look at a product like cloud paint, and this is not spawn for Glossier. No, but shout way. out to Puff, my my <laughs> my favorite uh, yep. shade that I pay for myself. No, but literally a child could successfully apply that. Yeah. You discuss in your book how a lot of the roots of Glossier actually come from another generation-defining brand, which is Clinique. Can you mm. talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So Clinique was developed, I think, in like the late 60s. And the idea was that it was this kind of like scientific line that was also sort of like young coated. So you have the like white lab coats that the, you know, people who worked there wore. Pre-Margiela, might Pre, I add. Yes, pre-Margiela. Margiela wishes. <laughs> and then like silver jewelry. And, you know, they had that lip color uh, black honey that like goes viral every few years on social media with <laughs> someone who's 22 being like, it looks good on everyone. It's your lips, but better. And it's like, yeah, bitch, we've been knowing, you know, <laughs> like, and so Clinique was this kind of barely there makeup look. I remember when I was in probably like my early 20s, they did a collab with like Liv Tyler on this like red shade. Like it was always very kind of like a young, carefree generation. They have that like happy perfume, which is really not for me, but successful. You know, I actually love Clinique Happy. Is that my hot take? Yeah. No, no. no. I I think it's good for, it's like the way that like my father bought his ex, the Sarah Jessica Parker perfume, which I think (laughs) smells like pine salt, but like she loves it, you know? Perfume is very individual. Well, it was also the Irving Penn Clinique ads. I think Glossier has yeah. you know, referenced a lot and not just Glossier, many, many brands have, of course, referenced those ads, but they have done it, I think, perhaps the most successfully with Raymond Meyer. Meyer, yeah. And then crucially, so Clinique had this like three step skincare system that was a cleanser, a toner, a moisturizer. Mm-hmm. And my mom uh, used that. Yeah, a lot of people's moms did. And a lot of people inherited it from their moms as kind of their first recommended skincare routine. And no one had kind of done like a contemporary answer to that until Glossier came up with their initial four products that was a moisturizer, a skin tint, a balm, and like a rosy mist. 
And it was this like four pack. It was priced between sort of drugstore and department store prices. And it looked cool, but not intimidating. And I think it instantly resonated. I really hate talking about disruptive brands and using the word disruptive (laughs) in general. But obviously, this has been an extremely disruptive brand in the beauty industry. How do you think it has changed the beauty industry? Well, okay. So Glossier came from Into the Gloss. And Into the Gloss was this popular beauty blog started by Emily Weiss in think like 2010, they had this famous column called Top Shelf where like someone who is, you know, famous or cool would kind of, you'd go into their bathroom and you'd see everything they'd use and they'd talk about it in their own words. See their discarded diptyque candles currently being used (laughs) as as a makeup brush brush holder. Yes. Yes. A little P fit. You know, it really was things that are now popular, like Biologique Recherche's P50 toner, Aesop hand soap, things that are now kind of codified as like cool millennial high-end products are really because I think Glossier or Into the Gloss like made them that way to a certain extent because you're seeing them in like Alexa Chung's bathroom. So Emily Weiss, the founder, had this idea that she could kind of like crowdsource products based on all of these fans of her website. And so She did. And that was just like a completely different way of thinking about like what products to start with and the way to launch a beauty line. I remember the first time I saw the Glossier products, I was, I don't know if I said it out loud or just was thinking it, but I was like, that's it. Like I, I expected something more formal, like, you know, here's our 20 lipsticks and are like 10 foundations and, you know, whatever. Or like if you're going to do skincare, where was the like sunscreen and the cleanser? Like it felt a little random to me, but I think quite brilliantly they were kind of basing themselves on brands like Supreme and streetwear that did drops, melding that with the kind of clinique like beauty for young people. So they were direct to consumer, which was like Warby Parker and Casper and all these kinds of um, successful brands at the time. And they were also beauty, which was kind of becoming understood as this like really economically viable business. And even though it was like 10, 15 years ago, it feels so long ago because now we have all of these kind of imitation brands and seemingly every celebrity from like Selena Gomez to Scarlett Johansson to Brad Pitt, on and on and on. It's this huge, profitable, genre-defying thing. And Glossier, maybe they weren't the first, but they were sort of the most emblematic brand of the era and really has this share of interest in our our minds and our wallets. It is really impressive that Emily Weiss transitioned from kind of more of a New York it girl. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. Like, no, she was genuinely very cool. Yeah. Here on the Every Outfit pod, it girls are like gods. But she kind of went from. Was she in the New York magazine or it girl? She was. She was in their timeline. She was in the timeline. Yes. Um, But it is really impressive how she went from being an it girl with a media job to the CEO of a company that at its peak was valued at, what was it? $1.8 billion. Yeah, almost $2 yeah. billion. Dollars. Absolutely insane. Like any It Girl, there's something unknowable about an It Girl. Mm-hmm. And there's something unknowable about 
Emily Weiss. You write in your book, you've interviewed her multiple times. You too struggled to know her. So I wanted to know, how would you characterize the interviews with her and who she is as a person? She's a cipher. And I, I mean, I kind of mean that as a compliment, really. I am I respect people who are hard to know. I feel like I'm way too easy to read and to know <laughs> and to understand. <laughs> yeah, same. Um, I have nothing but interest and fascination maybe because of that and people who have a certain mystery to them. She always was very steadfast in not talking and being just very unwilling to comment on her private life. As far as I know, I was the only journalist who ever, you know, interviewed her in her apartment. And you made a frittata with her. (laughs) Yeah, even that. I mean, that was, I think, took a lot of negotiation. She's definitely been out and about in New York like any it girl and stories abound. But she really doesn't, you know, comment on who she's dated, who she hasn't dated. She's been so deft at crafting this narrative of her as um, an entrepreneur, an executive that in many ways she got her start in our public consciousness as a reality TV person and has done her best to sort of step away or erase that. Similarly, she wasn't it girl, but really repositioned herself as this like serious, disruptive business owner, philosopher, you know, entrepreneur type. Right. Because she wants Glossier to be like Nike, essentially. Yeah. She talked about it in those words. Like she would say, people ask us, are you a beauty company? Are you tech company? And I say, yes, which is a very like tech founder kind of thing to say. But, you know, the reality was they sort of tried to be a tech company, mostly because it was sort of a trendy thing to do in a way, which is sort of weird to think about something that, you know, you threw probably millions of dollars at. But I think that's sort of the truth. I mean, I think a lot of her life has been about positioning herself and writing her own narrative. And also she did this thing in interviews a lot where it was like she'd invite you in or me in to interview her and then say something and then five minutes in be like, I want this to be off the record. And it would just kind of like run out the clock, you know, which is pretty hard. I'm like in LA for two days and I've arranged my life through this or like I have a book to write and I thought you I was going to interview you for it. And now you're just, you know, saying things that I can't include for sure. As you mentioned in your book, a lot of very public-facing female founders that were viewed as Emily's contemporaries got canceled during the pandemic for one reason or another. Emily was not. Do you think that her being the public face of this brand has benefited her, or is that an unnecessary risk for someone like Emily Weiss? I think it definitely benefited her because it's hard for a brand like Glossier that's not attached to a celebrity or something to get attention without having some kind of like charismatic leader or some kind of compelling story. And since she wasn't willing to like, I don't know, give up her personal life as some sort of narrative to have like a People magazine cover story, then in order to kind of position herself as a leader and to get Glossier press, 
you have to then see her as a boss. And we have this kind of girl boss moment of people like her and Ty Haney from Outdoor Voices and Audrey Gelman from The Wing and Leander Cohen from Man Repeller. And so it was this way for Emily Weiss to talk about herself and her company without having to talk about her personal life or like do some kind of like what I wear in a week, like fashion story. But then at the same time, girl boss is like dime square or like hipster. No one is like proudly like claiming it for themselves. Right. I will say that I have worked for Sophia Amoroso, and you I have? I do like her. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Sophia is a genius. But well, yes, she. I mean, we should remind has... people her book was called Hashtag Girl Boss. Yes, it was but, a bestseller. She took it to the bank. She did, but it has come to, I guess, represent yeah, a sort of toxic white the sound of the background is dad <laughs> crawling into a corner and vaping like our little that's perfect like our little pet yeah <laughs> that's perfect we'll yeah. keep it in yeah but yeah it's i guess toxic white feminism i believe you say something to that effect in your book yeah these women so exclusively had press on them and it's important to think about who wasn't included in that and why. Like, there were plenty of women in business who weren't in, like, front-facing positions. These are women that were, like, pretty socially connected. They lived in, like, New York and L.A. They were kind of friends with each other. They were fashionable. They were conventionally good-looking. They were willing to pose for magazine covers and probably had, like, publicists and stylists and stuff like that. And so... It was a strange moment and one that, in retrospect, feels a little ridiculous, but it did benefit her and yeah. these other women until it didn't. I have a theory. I think the kiss of death for being a female founder is A, going to a Chanel party, and B, <laughs> being on the cover of Domino Magazine. That's my belief. I mean, the sad thing is I would love to be in Domino Magazine or we all? get invited to a Chanel party. Like, you, can, you can still come for me. Um, you're propped up too much that people can't wait to sort of make an example of you or to take you down. And when the pandemic hit and things got weird for business, and then on top of that, there was a racial reckoning, a lot of dirt was sort of churned up about these women, including Emily Weiss. There was a group of... Um, employees, mostly retail, that were called out of the gloss that were angry about the treatment of retail employees, most of whom were like people of color. But I, you know, the crucial difference between Emily and some of the other girl bosses was that none of the allegations were about how Emily Weiss or even her like fellow executives really behaved. It was more about the way that retail employees often have shitty jobs and, you know, right. have it was to like the customers, their... maybe more so the customers yeah. and the lack of HR. Yeah, maybe that like HR and management really hadn't thought enough about, you know, how to kind of like protect these employees in these new times or something like that. But also Glossier's response was pretty thoughtful where they donated money, but they also started this kind of like incubator beauty program that's still around for um, black 
beauty founders who the ones I talked to all had genuinely great things to say about it, including just that, like, they got the money quickly. Like, they asked them for their bank account info and it was wired in right away. Like, who hasn't had to, like, bug someone about getting <laughs> money owed you? I was like, that was impressive to me. The company has always been about kind of their community and customers. So I think it was part of their sort of corporate ethos to, like, listen and respond better than it would be for someone like... I don't know, like Refinery29 or something like that, maybe. Yeah, I can see that. So in the book, you write about the fact that Emily Weiss was nervous that you were writing this book, anxious, I believe you said. Do you know if she's read it? Have you heard from her? What is the vibe? The short answer is no. I haven't gotten any kind of like formal request for the book from her, but I know many, many former and current employees have read it. And, you know, many people in the media have advanced copies. I would be shocked if she hasn't. But I guess like the bigger thing is I just knew she wasn't going to like the book, even though I actually think it's very fair and even kind of like makes her maybe be seen as like more serious and more important than many people had thought. She's a control freak, you know, like many of us. And she's not the kind of person that's going to like anything that isn't <laughs> authored by her. It's hard to be written about. And so I wasn't expecting a bouquet of flowers. <laughs> a bouquet of uh, reflexed roses straight from the Glossier store. The stores are incredible. They I think are. the stores are kind of the most major thing they've ever done, I guess, because it encompasses every great thing they've ever done in a single physical location. Yeah, but. they were smart. I mean, I think they understood that for retail to work, it had to be a destination and feel really important and be the kind of thing that's like a stop on your trip to New York. And conveniently, it's next to Baltazar. So what more could you ask for? Well, and even maybe more conveniently, Jack's wife, Frida, which for reasons <laughs> I don't totally understand has become this like TikTok bait kind of place. Where is Glossier today? Because was it last year they laid off like a third of their corporate staff? Yeah. The company is now valued at, it's an estimate, but significantly less than it was at its peak. They've expanded yeah. into Sephora. What do you think the future holds? Are they in trouble or are they just not making as much money as they were at the peak when there was kind of no other brand like it? I think the first thing is no one knows how much money they were making or losing. You know, brands like that that are fueled by venture capital. I mean, revenue is such a sort of abstract term. And because they're privately, you know, held, they're never going to tell us anyway. So you assume they're probably still losing money. But um, I think that, you know, nerdy money talk aside, I think their main challenge is to like, have good products. Like, the past year or so has been this kind of like reintroduction of Glossier. They went into Sephora. And so there's all these people who are probably encountering Glossier, or at least like in person for the first time. And, you know, probably hopefully getting new um, fans. But then there's like, do you wear the deodorant? I do. 
I do like the deodorant, I have to say, although it's expensive. Or like the you I, okay, candle. Look, I don't like, wear it if I know I'm having a rough day, if you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. Like there's a time for aluminum and then there's a time for just like the Glossier U deodorant. Oh, interesting. That's how I am with Glossier versus like the Caudalie deodorant. Caudalie is like I'm doing nothing. I'm at home. The hardest thing I'm doing is walking a bulldog. Okay. <laughs> yes. But uh, so anyway, like I think that they're challenged is to keep that kind of magic that they had up. And to me, that's about having exciting products that like capture your imagination and fill a void and feel quite right. They, as we're talking now, they just launched the stretch foundation. I'm not real. I'm not a foundation person. No, I don't care about I don't own a single foundation. Really? Well, you have amazing skin. So do you, bitch. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm curious about the foundation. I do think that Ultra Lip, which is one of their recent ish products, is one of their best ones. I like Ultra Lip a lot. And I think you and I wear the same color, that weird goth one. The, like, dark brown one? Yeah, but it looks great. It's kind of like a little bit Clinique. It's um, Yes, it's black, black honey. honey adjacent. Yeah, exactly. And that was not a mistake. No, not at all. So, I mean, I think that they're on the right track, but I think they need some innovative products along the lines of the perfume that has no top note that smells like nothing else. or It smells the- like nothing else, but also it smells like nothing. And I, I mean that as a compliment. It. Yeah, I love it. But it was the perfume version of No Make a Mega. Yeah, it's yeah. Really, it is really smart. I also love for the perfume they did a pop up in New York. Did you ever go where like I did, a but hand I saw- would, would like hand you a rose? It was yeah, very David Lynch. Like I, I yeah, did da da David Lynch. I did yeah. see this on Instagram. Yes, I feel like all of that is very like Emily and her early employees being just like very playful and weird. And I would like to see that. Like, I would like a little less Jack's wife, Frida, a little more like weirdo surrealist theater and like products like Boy Brow that like combine three into one or that just don't feel like anything else. My face wouldn't have structure. If not for that. I love it so much. I I mean, I'm not a product developer. I'm like, "Uh, it's your job. Like, give me something that delights me. But yeah, give me something that delights me. (laughs) I know you're in the thick of promoting this book, but your next book was just announced last month. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us about it a little? Because I am very, very excited. It's about... Speaking of it, girls. Yeah, it's about Jane Birkin. And it's about, you know, it's like a juicy biography of her life. You know, some of my favorite eras, like swinging 60s into like sexy 70s, you know, Parisians and all the fashion and the drama that comes with it. And then I really want to get like, you know, the way that Glossier Uh, the glossy book is and anything else into like the context around it. So it's like, why do we care about Jane Birkin as this like ultimate French girl archetype? And like, what does that even mean? And why are we marketed that? Like, one thing that really made me want to write the book is like in the days following her death, like Depop and all of these resale sites were reporting like crazy, you know, 400% increases in people searching for like, crochet dresses and you know basket bags and it's like why is this one woman in her 20s you know in the 70s this like 
you know, icon of style that we're still obsessed with. And when in reality, she lived for a long time and actually didn't have a facelift and wore like very cool, like tailored men's clothes and like Levi's. And it's about age. It's about France. It's about owning bulldogs. Exactly. It's everything I care about. More importantly, me and Marissa, I think a big part of our friendship is talking about our love of dogs our love of these beautiful, slobbery, fat, lazy creatures. <laughs> when you read the book and there's a hundred pages about <laughs> about bulldogs, then you understand why. Marissa, that's the book I want. I know. You're <laughs> like Truly. half of it is about the creation of the Birkin, and then half of it is about <laughs> bulldogs with like ten pages about like tempestuous love with an older Jewish man. <laughs> and like a few pages about those like stripy shirts and those tiny, tiny little denim shorts. Tiny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Marissa, thank you so much for being here today. It has been, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm so happy to finally have you on the pod. Please come back anytime All you, it, feel the, mean, you feel yeah. the urge. <laughs> I'll haunt you like Kim Cattrall's ghost. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. I love that for me. <laughs> <laughs> 